hello and good evening good afternoon and good morning to all panelists guests and participants uh, joined us here depending on what time zones you are in greetings to all you from uh, center for public policy research uh, my name is gautam and i shall be the host for today's webinar every day every day the world seems to be waking up to a new challenge and new problem and of course a new normal right but the people and organizations which are in the forefront of facing this new challenges we at cppr are committed to bringing new ideas from renowned experts from india and abroad on various public policy perspective across various domains the cppr webinar series is one such initiative where we bring together experts professionals influencers students and the general public for open discourses the center for public policy research is an independent public policy think tank based of kochi since 2004 cppr has been working in the focus areas of economy cities and infrastructure livelihood education health governance and law election studies international relations defense and security studies today's webinar titled us presidential election 2020 charting the future of india us ties is organized by cppr center for strategic studies which program center predominantly deals with international relations indian foreign policy defense and security studies here i extend a warm welcome to all of you joining us here especially our distinguished speakers it is a great privilege for cppr to have with us mr richard ambroso as a panelist for this webinar mr ambroso is senior advisor and holds the vadhwani chair in us india policy studies at the center for strategic and international studies washington as cppr president in the color mr ambroso helped frame and shape policies to promote better business and economic engagement between the two countries he had also formerly served as the deputy director of us india business council mr richard rosso on behalf of cppr and everyone present out here i welcome you sir moving on next panelist is uh, professor dr g gobakuma dr gobakuma recently retired as the vice chancellor of central university kerala he is also a ugc emeritus fellow and the recipient of numerous national and international awards along with fellowship including fulbright fellowship twice in 1998 and 2002 a leading political scientist pathologist dr gobakuma specializes in international relations comparative politics and indian politics above all dr gobakuma is an advisor to cppr and has been a great source for us from our initial days dr gobakuma on behalf of cppr cppr team and everyone present out here i welcome you sir the moderator for today's discussion is dr d dandraj who is the founding chairman and managing trustee of cppr is a public policy consultant and writer whose expertise and prime focus is in areas of urbanization urban transport and infrastructure education health livelihood law and election analysis on behalf of everyone present here i welcome you sir last but not the least 
I extend a very warm welcome to all our participants here who are joining from all over India and the world. Before we proceed, uh, I would like to remind you some of the house rules for all of our participants. Rule number one, uh, I request all the participants to keep their audio mute until further notice. Rule number two, in case if you have any question to the panelists, you can type them in the chat box available. Rule number three, this event is also being live streamed in CPPR's Facebook page. And rule number four, if you want to follow our live tweets, uh, it's in Twitter with the hashtag CPPR webinar. Thank you all. And now I handing over the proceedings to Dr. Dandas. Sir. Thank you, Gautam. Uh, thank you, Gautam, for that uh, introduction and also welcome uh, of, uh, to all the participants, panelists here. It's always my uh, pleasure to you know, sit with these two gentlemen. Uh, one is my mentor, teacher, guru, uh, Dr. G. Gov Goma, uh, somebody who uh, you know, helped me uh, inculcated the, the scientific spirit as a political scientist, you know, how to look at elections and how to analyze elections over a period of time. Uh, and he has been a very big supporter of CPPR's activities. Uh, so I'm very much uh, happy. I'm very happy uh, to sit with him and have this conversation today. The other gentleman on the panel, uh, Mr. Richard Rosso, uh, my great friend. Uh, I think every time I travel to Washington, he hosts me. And uh, we have we used to we, we we have a long chat or a cup of coffee, uh, you know. And I think he speaks more about Indian and Indian elections in Indian political scenario than what is there with the American political system. So we are going to hear from Rosso the Indian side of uh, American elections, whereas Dr. Gopaguma uh, will give you a preview on uh, the Indian uh, uh, understanding about American elections. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, sparing your time to uh, have this conversation with me. And uh, as Gautam said, to all the panelists, all the participants and uh, those who are uh, watching this conversation, uh, if you have any trouble watching this Zoom live, please uh, 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 visit our CPPR Facebook page. Uh, this live stream is also there. And uh, we also have uh, Twitter and Facebook uh, 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 chat box available for you to ask questions along with the Zoom chat box. Uh, right now, you can uh, type the questions. We, I'll be taking questions uh, from the audience after uh, the introductory uh, discussion uh, with the, both the panelists. So I start the conversation. It's going to be a very informal chat uh, discussing various aspects of India-US relations. And uh, 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 I think globally, uh, everybody is uh, you know, looking at uh, US, US elections, the upcoming US elections scheduled on first week of November. And uh, many believe that this is going to be a turning point, uh, whether we are going to maintain the status quo or whether we're going to bring a new person to White House and how the policies and how the politics of not only of USA, I think the global politics, how that is going to be. Uh, reverberated by the, uh, the, the election outcome uh, uh, in the U.S. elections. Uh, so, Mr. Rosso, uh, you know, uh, we've been, as, as we keep talking over the last few years, you know, I think he, you are very an instrumental uh, voice. You are, a, you know, you, are, you, are, you are playing a key role in developing India-U.S. relations, especially the business side, you know. 
Mahar, you will be sitting uh, New Delhi uh, when President Obama was in, in New Delhi, was, was in India in 2015. And uh, you are participating in many television shows. You are also engaging Indian uh, government uh, uh, at various levels. And since the Obama era, India and the US have been stressing on the potential of uh, increasing the bilateral trade uh, to 500 billion US dollars. And uh, uh, everybody believes that uh, uh, you know the administration, you know, whether Democrats wins or Republicans retains the presidentship in the US, a future administration should be more sensitive to India's needs and vulnerabilities. From 1999 to 2018, India's trade in goods and services between the two countries, the trade and services between the two countries, surged from US$16 billion to around $142 billion in 2019. Uh, at the same time, I think in the last three, four years, uh, we have seen, we have heard a lot from the President Trump. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, tariff a lot, a lot of discussion on the tariff uh, restrictions, and India countered it by you know countervailing duties and all. But even then, India has slightly narrowed the trade deficit in goods with the United States, which went from 24.3 billion dollars in 2016 to uh, around 23 billion US dollars in the 2019 uh, year. Uh, what is what do you think? What is the future? What is the future of these 500 billion? Uh, the, the aspirational value that we are looking at. What will, what 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 way the the incumbent, uh, the coming president, is going to influence the India-U.S. trade relationship? Yeah, the uh, the 500 billion target has always been uh, an interesting kind of announcement, but also somewhat ambiguous. Uh, if you think about it, you know, if you're kind of taking the long view over a hundred years, I'm sure we're going to cross the 500 billion mark at some point over the next hundred years. Um, sometimes the, uh, the leaders that announced and reiterate the 500 billion target, they don't necessarily talk about timelines. Occasionally they try to add one, but uh, usually it's left uh, fairly ambiguous. So, you know, we don't always know if they're aiming for that 500 billion mark in, in five years or 10 years, things like that. We're at an interesting point right now. Um, when you think about uh, the sort of trade pressures that both of our countries face, uh, they're very real. The United States, uh, when you think about goods trade, actually has the largest uh, trade deficit of any country in the world. Uh, India actually has the largest in terms of percent of GDP, at least among uh, G20 nations. So both of us face a lot of pressures when we think about trade liberalization. And that's resulted, uh, I think, in some uh, relative protectionist uh, sentiments by both of our governments. Uh, this predates Trump's election. Um, you've seen since Prime Minister Modi came to office, uh, you've actually seen uh, steady hikes in customs duties with the budget releases imposition of, uh, of new trade barriers in the form of uh, import substitution rules and domestic procurement preferences and things like that. That's been uh, pretty much every year, a few of these things kind of getting rolled out uh, over the six and a half years that the Modi government's been in office. Um, with President Trump, you saw a president who also wants to make sure that we try to shore up trade deficits and has taken a lot of actions. And for a country like India that's taken protectionist actions, uh, it's proven to be, I think, a pretty, uh, pretty big target for the President Trump to go after. Uh, it's good to see that the two leaders have maintained cordial relations, even while we're engaged in a, in a moderate level trade fight. Um, now, the good news is that, uh, you know, at least pre-COVID, um, even though our two governments have been uh, battling it out over trade policy and protectionist measures, you have seen trade, by and large, increase. Um, and, you know, part of that's due to, even though India may be imposing new trade barriers, They've also chosen to make strategic buys, buy, 
acquisitions that are that are led by the government or, or PSUs in India um, have chosen to go with American goods and services. So you've seen a big uptick in, in the procurement in recent years of US defense material. Uh, you've seen the first US petroleum shipments to India, the first natural gas shipments. So even though India is imposing barriers, um, they've actually been choosing to buy in areas where the government makes those decisions from the United States. And that's helped make sure that at least the goods, uh, goods trade has, has maintained some stability and even some growth. Um, services trade, we don't talk about quite as much, but that continues to be the real powerhouse. Most US companies that have any kind of commercial relationship with India, it tends to be on the uh, technology services trade. Um, you've got a lot of like US banks and financial institutions that may not even offer financial services or healthcare services or other things in the Indian market, yet they've got 10,000, 20,000 employees that are kind of managing the back end. And that's a different form of trade that is, is crucial, it's vital, and, and doesn't get quite as much discussion because I think still leaders in both of our countries um, still think about manufacturing and production as really kind of the core of our economies, even though it's really not true. Both of our economies are more services driven, but sentiments really tend to lie with manufacturing. And so when you think about trade, uh, a lot of times our leaders think more about the importance of goods trade rather than services. So 500 billion, um, we'll hit it. Uh, but if our leaders uh, reduce protectionist instincts, if, um, if we look at services as really kind of the jet engine for growth, uh, we'll hit it sooner rather than later. Um, so I have no question we'll hit it. It's more a question of when, and that's gonna be driven a lot by what our leaders decide. You know, are they, are they looking to rebuild repair relations or are they looking to continue fighting against countries where we've got deficits or fight the world, you know, in the case of uh, both of our countries because we both have massive trade deficits with the world. So we'll get there, just a question of time. But also, uh, uh, India has got around, you know, if you look at 2018 figures, you know, India's uh, trade with the uh, US is only around 78 billion dollars. That is almost uh, probably better than Taiwan or, you know, some of these uh, smaller countries. And many think uh, the ease of doing business or the, uh, the, the regulatory aspects that are prevailing in Indian situations, they're not uh, helping the US investors to come and invest in India. But I, I also want to tell you, I mean, I mentioned this point here, you know, during this COVID time, uh, uh, government of India estimates around uh, 20 billion US dollars been invested in India during the last six months during this COVID time. Uh, uh, you know, Facebook invested around 10 billion US dollars. So my, my, since you talked about PSUs and all, at the same time, we can see many of these, uh, you know, private companies, e-commerce companies are coming to India and investing. So uh, on one side, you have, a, you know, a, a big regulatory system that probably stops or, you know, restricts, restricting the US, US investment in India. But at the same time, I also know that, you know, many of these uh, foreign direct investment coming from US, you know, it's going rooted through the tax heavens, you know, so probably the number that we see is not the right number, probably it is more than yeah. that. And, <laughs> That's right. uh, and, uh, and um, I also, I was also reading one of these comments by uh, Dhruva Jaishankar of, uh, you know, IRF, who is saying that, uh, you know, probably US is the only comprehensive economic partner. I mean, you know, we have, you know, partners in Russia, you know, partnership with Russia, you have trade partners in Japan, you know, security partnership with uh, France. But US is the only country which has got a, which has in the last two decades, we have seen that uh, uh, an all stick approach from the both the sides, you know, engaging each other and understanding each other. And uh, we are almost getting into almost every field now, you know, in terms of trade. So you believe yeah. uh, whoever comes to the White House, this, this, 
this uh, this trend will continue. This trend will continue. Well, and, and you briefly touched on when you talked about the regulations that impede either Indian companies' growth or the ability for U.S. companies to invest in the market. You know, as you know, Danu, um, a lot of my work too. It's not necessarily focused on regulations and what's happening in Delhi, because when you think about um, India's economy and what kind of drives growth. Uh, it's a lot less Delhi now, and it's really a lot more about what's happening in India's state capitals. And there's been very little transparency and very little accountability for India's state governments to try to do the right things to uh, improve the business environment and to try to attract investment. You've got a few stars, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi when he was Chief Minister of Gujarat, I think Chandra Babu Naidu during his uh, innings uh, both times in Andhra Pradesh. So there's a, there's a few state leaders that really did try to deregulate and try to attract foreign investment. It's not necessarily a winning formula for elections, though. Um, you know, you saw Naidu twice now coming to power and twice now voted out. Um, so uh, encouraging foreign investment and, and, and frankly, deregulating the economy and using the political muscle in that direction um, still is not yet to be seen as an electoral winner in India. Once that begins to change, I think once urbanization numbers begin to pick up and growing urban economies and seeing manufacturing jobs and such becomes more of a voter issue than it is today, you know, then I think, too, um, you know, you start to hit some virtuous cycles that'll help us get to that $500 billion. India in the next couple of years is going to become the most populous country on Earth. Uh, sometime in my lifetime, it's going to become the third largest economy on Earth. Uh, all these things speak to the fact that the uh, today is pretty good on our economic relationship. And, and tomorrow I'm willing to bet my life on. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, that gives you a lot of insights to start this conversation. Uh, Dr. Kapugumar, I know uh, you're a political scientist and uh, I, I'm sure the last few decades you've seen many American elections and uh, I'm, 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 I'm sure you agree with me, this American election is totally different from what probably we have witnessed in the last few decades. And uh, interestingly, uh, you know, whether though we, they debate and agree and disagree on various things, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, I see one interesting line uh, in, in the manifesto, in the, the Indian version, if I look at uh, the, the way they projecting their uh, candidatures. Uh, both the camps are fighting for the soul of America. What does it mean for America and what does it mean for India? The soul of America. Know, both Democrats and Republicans, they, 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 they're fighting for the soul of America. That's what uh, I think they keep repeating this uh, statement, uh, soul of America. Uh, so how do you look at this you know, from Indian perspective? Okay, thank you. Uh, uh, this question is specifically about uh, what exactly that constitutes the soul of America. Uh, in fact, uh, this is a very significant question for two great democracies to share the values of democracy, share the values of liberalism, share the values of multiculturalism. The real American dream has come from the traditional city upon a hill. And therefore, America has improved and moved a lot. But over a long period of time, there has been great settlement in the society and the bloodlines of many countries have came, have actually mixed up and with the result, uh, a multicultural society has emerged. So the real dream for America, I think in my, to my mind is to develop a peaceful, liberal, democratic society. 
rather than an entire building. Uh, from an Indian viewpoint also, we share the same feeling that uh, as a strong democracy, America has to become a role model to other nations. Uh, India is the largest democracy in the world. Uh, nevertheless, it has to go a long way in conscientizing the people properly and empowering the people and making an inclusive multicultural society. But during the last uh, 70 years, we have done uh, great things in the strengthening of democracy compared to many of the neighbors in South Asia and uh, nearby and Southeast Asia or even in Afro-Asian nations. So Indian dream or India also dream about a, a liberal, I mean, a liberal society where people are given reasonably their voice and their ability to come forward, freedom to work and also their faith, belief, and definitely sharing, understanding, and exchanging their ideas and values. So the Indian and American dream actually doesn't conflict that way because what brings them together are, is the values of democracy and liberalism. So in fact, uh, uh, India has adapted a lot from the American ideas in the constitution and further that uh, we have developed a very strong constitutional setup. So India also dream of a liberal society and the American dream that we expect is that it will promote cooperation, multiculturalism and develop a multilateral society where the real spirit of United Nations for that matter to see that governance from a multilateral angle so that uh, instead of sharing power from one center or two centers like in the Cold War period, or in the post-Cold War period, the world is moving towards a multilateral cooperation. And that kind of society requires the dream of a real democracy where liberalism, peace, and freedom are guaranteed. So that is exactly the dream that India also expects from America. And the sharing of such values are so important for India that we do expect that America will be able to contribute for the strengthening of pluralism, uh, inclusiveness, liberalism, pacifism, and democracy. Thank you. When we discuss the soul of America, the one uh, you know issue that I think everybody is dealing with now is the change, tone, and tenor of American politics in the last four years, and uh, in all these uh, you know discussions and debates, including one presidential debate and the other vice presidential debate. You've seen that. So do you think uh, change is uh, you know, inevitable uh, to, to you know, so, 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 so again, uh, get that soul of America, get to uh, find that soul of America, realize that soul of America, the true Americanism. Uh, what do you think from your, you know, you, you are an observer of these elections for the last three, four decades. So how do you look at the percent political campaign? Dr. Yeah, please repeat the question. I, I couldn't get your question, honestly. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, the question is about, you know, last four years, we are seeing the changing political nature, the change in political nature of American uh, system. You know, President Trump, uh, he has got a very 
you know, yeah. a different style of functioning, uh, uh, different from the, preceded, pre, uh, the, pre, uh, the preceding yeah. uh, officers in the White House. Uh, so do we, I mean, uh, are we, do we, do you agree with my view that a, a change in the policy is possible with the change in the incumbent in White House? Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, the, the world has uh, changed a lot, honestly, during the last uh, couple of years. And that has to be taken into consideration by the United States as well. For example, as you see how the Indo-Pacific has changed, how South Asia has changed and Southeast Asia, and certainly Middle East. So there has been a lot of developments that has happened across the world. And as a result of which, I think uh, the next incumbent has to be extremely careful uh, whomsoever it is to address the issue. For example, as far as India and America are concerned, uh, one region where we come together is Indo-Pacific. And there exactly we need a, a tremendous institutional strength because now we have the regional cooperation uh, for Asia-Pacific. And also that the uh, institutionalization of uh, relationship in the, in the region, particularly by developing the Quad, uh, India, Japan, Australia, and United States, I think uh, we can organize a lot and also see that uh, the, the new incumbent has to appreciate the kind of progress and development that India has achieved during the last uh, many years. And also to see that how the uh, geopolitical issues that affects our region uh, are taken very seriously because it matters America very well uh, because the two best examples are Pakistan and China. Uh, the, the conventionally speaking, Trump has a very strong anti-Pakistan position and uh, his attitude towards China also got a little aggravated, particularly on the trade war issue. So both these two aspects are very important as far as American interests are concerned because Pakistan, unfortunately, has become one fertile ground for the promotion of international terrorism. And uh, on the other side, uh, the, 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 the Chinese interest and its incursion to India and some regions of India. And as rightly said, uh, uh, the Chinese incursions move um, to the, uh, as far as uh, South China Sea to the Himalayas. So when you take all these factors into consideration, not only the economic aspect, the, the geostrategic aspects are wider. So as a strong power in the contemporary world, I think United States has to see how uh, Southeast Asia, Indo-Pacific, South Asia, uh, and definitely Middle East. All these are changing, and therefore the concerns are very important for the next incumbent because uh, uh, many uh, scholars have predicted that the traditional American might has changed, if not declined a lot. But at the same time, America continues to be the strongest economy in the world, and therefore uh, its interests are also multilateral. And all these aspects are to be considered. And you have two giant economic powers growing in Asia, China and India. And definitely, America has vital interests. And the closing years of uh, Trump's regime, we have seen how the trade war in, in improved. And as a result of the trade war, how China and America got strained in the last couple of months. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Babu
Mr. Rosso, uh, you know, we are having this meeting on 22nd and 25th and 26th. Uh, you know, Mike Pompeo and Mark Exper are in Delhi to continue their two plus two dialogue with their Indian counterparts. You know, from Indian side, AMA uh, Mr. Jay Shankar and Defence uh, Minister Rajnath Singh are going to lead the discussion. Uh, and that's also expected that uh, basic exchange and cooperation agreement, BECA, would be signed during this uh, time. And the past year, you know, India and uh, America signed uh, LIMOVA, COMCASA. Uh, so what are the expectations? One, there are two questions related to this topic, you know, two plus two dialogue, continuing two plus two dialogue. Many are asking this question. Now, next week, America is going to, you know, have this election. And whether this is a signal that uh, no, Modi government or the Indian leadership is giving to the global world, to the, to the, to the, the global leadership, that irrespective of the you know, changes, it may happen, it may not happen. Trump may continue or Biden may you know, uh, get elected. Irrespective of that factor, you know, our relationship is very strong. The positive trajectory that India-US relation has seen in the last 20 years, that will continue. Or the next question would be, you know, is Modi's uh, depending a lot more on Trump's leadership than Biden's, you know, uh, probably the chances to get elected to White House. What is your take on this? Yeah, I, I think by and large, uh, most of the elements that brought our two countries together are going to remain very much in place. And, you know, as Dr. Gopakumar correctly stated, you know, mostly it revolves around the evolving U.S. positions vis-a-vis -vis China and Pakistan. Um, Pakistan, obviously, you know, this idea that we had, you know, going back uh, 20 years ago when I first started working on India affairs, that we had to treat India and Pakistan with some level of parity clearly was a non-starter for deepening our security relationship with India. And if you look at the, the level of cooperation that we have with India across the board, you know, there, there's no question that uh, it's, a, it's a massive differentiation between how we treat the two now. So that's been an incredibly powerful door opener, uh, I think, and a, and a real proof point to Delhi that Washington is thinking about South Asia differently. Um, but then China. And, you know, I know sometimes we think about kind of this about face, this really snap uh, view that uh, President Trump has presented in, in coming out so aggressively vis-a-vis uh, -vis China um, that had been evolving to some extent a little bit earlier. Um, you think about the initial U.S. overtures to India, to Vietnam and some other uh, eight traditional partners that began you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, a lot of that was kind of hedging the bets. So we weren't yet ready to say that you know, China really was becoming our, our main rival in the region and you know, concerns about that it may destabilize the security architecture that we developed. But uh, the, mere, the mere fact that we were trying to build out security relationships with new partners, uh, most of whom we thought would have kind of a shared view about the you know, potential uh, dangers of the rise of China, uh, that wasn't coincidental. Um, but you did see a, a much sharper about face with the Trump administration in calling out some of the concerns about China. I think, you know, if, if, uh, if, if President Trump is, is reelected or if you do see uh, Vice President Biden uh, being elected, I don't think you're going to see a dramatic change in that. Frankly, there are relatively few voices in Washington now that are saying that, you know, there still is a lot of hope that uh, China will embrace globalization and become, um, I think, a responsible global partner. Um, in fact, you see during the COVID period, uh, China striking out in multiple directions simultaneously, uh, very aggressively, very quickly. Uh, you know that in your own border with China. You've seen it in recent years uh, across the Indian Ocean region, uh, the South China Sea, a lot more uh, tensions increased with Taiwan. 
and what you see happening in Hong Kong with the crackdown on, on, on you know, basic democratic principles, uh, no question at all that, uh, that I think uh, Biden administration, they're not going to turn around and try to do another about face. I do think you, you may have a higher chance uh, to see a, a Biden administration uh, maybe engaging partners a little bit more deeply uh, instead of taking a lot of unilateral actions. Uh, one great example I think that we would very much recognize is, you know, you've seen the Modi government, uh, for instance, uh, banning uh, hundreds of Chinese made apps, concerns about China's ability to, to soak up vast amounts of data and, and potentially harms they could use for that. Um, because there is no bright line between the private sector and the Communist Party in China. So um, you've seen the United States take our own steps in that direction, probably more pending. Uh, it sure would be nice if a group of like-minded countries, the United States and India and others, would actually consult with each other and take these steps multilaterally, develop a series of principles on, you know, what is, what is the right kind of data transfer policies with countries like China and which are the danger areas. Um, you know, doing these steps uh, in partnership and in conjunction rather than unilaterally uh, makes a lot more sense to me. And hopefully, you know, there's some areas that uh, if Biden is elected, that he'd have a little bit more capability in, in engaging on. Um, but I do think that uh, China as a, as a core concern, you know, you saw with President Obama, the, the pivot to Asia, the rebalance um, with President Trump, the free and open Indo-Pacific. So, so clearly shoring up relationships with a number of partners across the Indo-Pacific region, it succeeded across two administrations. I don't think that's going to change. Now, getting to the future, um, I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind, uh, more from the U.S. perspective. We've been very slow, I think, to waking up to the fact that all of you in India know very well which is China is making rapid advances in the Indian Ocean region, uh, building out maritime partnerships. Uh, Sri Lanka, we know about, uh, Djibouti, uh, the Gwadar port in Pakistan, uh, their attempt to acquire an island which could have been a naval base in Maldives. Um, so there, there's a lot of push that China is making in your neck of the woods. And I think the United States was a little bit slow to recognize that. We were still hoping India would become a much bigger player in the fights that we saw as, uh, as the forefront. Uh, which is South China Sea and East China Sea. But I think you know that's a great thing about the, the new two plus two format. Um, you've actually seen uh, in two plus two meetings uh, a real awakening uh, by the United States about the concerns in the Indian Ocean region. Um, you see that uh, India now has uh, increased access to Africa Command, uh, US Central Command, the two commands that look at the other parts of the Indian Ocean. Um, you see that uh, India has opened up the door for an American officer to be stationed at the uh, information fusion center that India is creating for the Indian Ocean region. Um, so there's a lot of good things I think that, that are happening right now. Uh, primarily it's the United States waking up to the threats India faces and trying to accommodate and be uh, responsive to that. I think that's gonna be really the, uh, the forefront of the future. And then the quad, um, you know, I think the uh, quad, this grouping of uh, the, the announcement the other day that Australia will be formally invited to join the Malabar Naval Exercise. Um, from my own engagements with uh, Chinese security officials in government, uh, it's very clear that Quad, among all the groupings in the region, is the one that they're most concerned about. Um, they, they complain about it, they fight about it, they yell about it, and that's a pretty big signal that uh, the Quad, if these four countries can begin working more closely together, and if China does things to try to destabilize uh, the security, uh, uh, security ties across Asia, this is a group of countries that may be able to co collectively uh, look at imposing penalties on China, and they've got the heft to do it. Um, so, uh, so I think there's some good things happening in our bilateral relationship as the United States engages on the Indian Ocean more effectively. And I think uh, the, the, the great work that we've seen in recent years on the Quad, I sure hope that's continued uh, in, in, no matter who wins the, the next U.S. election, because I think that's the grouping that I would, uh, I would circle and say, 
you know, this could be uh, the, the real guarantor of the security architecture in Asia for the future. That's interesting news, uh, positive news from the US about the India-US relations, irrespective of uh, you know, who is the incumbent in the White House uh, by uh, uh, early 2021. 20, uh, Dr. Gobagumar, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, this is an unprecedented scale of visibility for Indian Americans you know, this time around. Uh, they're getting a lot of limelight and also with the candidature of Kamala Harris as vice presidential candidate, you know, a lot of discussion about, you know, the, this is going to boost uh, or, you know, strengthen America, India-US relationship already, uh, Rosa has mentioned about it. This is going to continue. The trend is going to continue. Uh, my question is not related to that. Uh, no, there is a, I was going through one of the recent studies conducted by you know, uh, my good friend, Milan Vaishna from Carnegie, Devesh Kapoor and uh, Subhadra among the Indian American waters uh, and what is their inclination, what is their orientation. And they found out that the diaspora community by and large are the waters of you know, Democrats. And uh, so in that context, I was actually trying to recollect uh, the Howdy Modi event. Uh, you know, even Prime Minister Modi said, you know, uh, probably the slogan he uses in India. <laughs> uh, he said, Abki Bari Trump Sarkar. And, uh, but the studies in America shows that the Indian Americans are, you know, historically, they are inclined to Democrat, uh, Democrats and Democrat candidates. Uh, so, uh, what is your take on it? You, you've been to America during election times in the past. Uh, you've seen American, you know, uh, Indian Americans. You've interacted with yes, uh, very, very significant question. Very yeah. Uh, Indian diaspora indeed has a, a long history, at least uh, more than 60, 60, 70 years, 60 to 70 years of settlement. And of course, the uh, recent migrants who have no, not uh, become citizens. Uh, in fact, the diaspora community in India is relatively strong. Uh, perhaps it can become, or it, is already has, it has already become the second largest group uh, in the country. Uh, and they have their own uh, regional wings across the United States because uh, like, you know, somebody from Kerala will have a Kerala association and somebody from Andhra Pradesh will have a Telugu association. And similarly, somebody from Punjab will have another association like that, you know, but it is fairly very, very strong. And uh, Indian diaspora has received a, a very good appreciation from the society, uh, particularly due to their hard work, loyalty to the system, and the kind of skill that they have demonstrated, uh, even during the uh, pre-globalization period. Uh, even before the soft skills have come, they were part of industry and agriculture, but now they have become very much involved with the uh, software as well as other kinds of telecommunication development. So they are a sizable force to reckon with. Uh, particularly this time, uh, my feeling is that a great majority of the uh, Indian diaspora will vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, traditionally, they were. But uh, during the last uh, couple of years, uh, at least a sizable section of the richer classes have moved uh, towards the Republican Party. But this time around, uh, it's going to be very, very significant and they are going to uh, vote uh, sizably uh, to the Democratic Party. There are many reasons for that. Uh, 
Uh, one reason, of course, is that uh, uh, the kind of policies that adopted recently during the Trump's regime uh, was a little uh, disincentive for the uh, diaspora coming for the uh, migrants from other parts of the world. So getting work permit itself has become extremely difficult. Uh, and for the, even for the settled people, there were many issues, you know, uh, many issues. And these issues, you know, once you find uh, coupled with uh, some of the problems like, you know, George Floyd uh, issue concerning, although it is a black issue, but as the slogan when they had Black Lives Matter, I'm sure that Kamara Harris' presence will make an uh, electrifying effect upon the Indian diaspora. And probably uh, more than 75% of the Democrats, uh, sorry, of the Indian diaspora would vote for the Democratic Party. And uh, also that uh, there have been, there are many things in common, sharing the common values and also upholding human rights of people and uh, also the interest that they promote for a multicultural society. All this would have turned in favor of the Democrats. So this time very particularly, unlike last year and last time, this time particularly, and the presence of Kamala Harris has also become another incentive for the Indian diaspora to tilt uh, significantly towards the Democratic Party. Uh, this could be true for other diaspora community also, but at least for this, I can say that there is a trend already visible that a huge majority has moved in, term, in favor of the Democratic Party. So that, that I think will uh, be a very important aspect as far as Indo-US relations are going to be concerned, because uh, as you remember, uh, even during the Indo-US uh, nuclear deal, there has been so much of appreciation and Clinton has also appreciated that. Historically, even uh, Kennedy's period, you find so much of rapport between Indians and Americans during that period. But now with Clinton and now with the Clinton, I mean, uh, definitely uh, Clinton, uh, Mr. Clinton and also in the subsequent period also you have seen. But this time around, there is more force and speed for the Democratic Party to garner Indian diaspora to their own bank. Thank you. So, Dr. Kabukumar, I have a question taking cue from the answers that you've given. Uh, Amir Jayashankar, when he visited DC, he refused to meet uh, you know, delegation, the Democrats' delegation last, uh, you know, last year. Uh, uh, the, the issue uh, yeah. was uh, you know, yeah. the Kashmir, uh, the Article 370, and uh, Kamala Harris had a remark. And uh, uh, one of the senators, Pramila Jagobal, also raised this issue. And uh, uh, Jayashankar refused to meet them. In case, in case, you know, uh, if the election outcome favors Democrat, you know, Democrat leadership in White House, uh, is it going to affect yeah. your relationship with the government? Because India government, you know, Mr. Modi enjoys a uh, brutal majority in the parliament. He's going to be here for the next four more years. Uh, but uh, uh, the, his, his relationship with, uh, you know, Trump, we have seen it. You know, we've seen how they hug, how they, you know, shake their hands and you know, how they embrace each other and uh, the two global leaders, the biggest and largest democracy coming together. Uh, and he's always, uh, you know, very, very, uh, you know, uh, very vocal about it. But now, given the situation, uh, Indian diaspora is voting more. I mean, I know that it's a traditional, the, the, the conventionally, they vote for uh, uh, the Democrats. And But that survey also points out one more thing. The survey also talks about the new, the next generation of Indian Americans, they started embracing Republicans. So I got two questions. One is, 
will it change over a period of time the 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 attitude of indian diaspora towards to both the parties in terms of the next generation embracing more and more embracing republicans conservatives and the next one is uh, on, on the, the 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 recent history of india's indian, indian government's engagement with democratic leadership how is it going to affect uh, in case biden wins this election yeah very relevant and very significant because uh, uh, the indian diaspora's uh, conventional support to democratic party has been uh, very well connected with the kind of domestic engagement and the kind of domestic politics in the united states uh, but when it comes to the, the issues relating to india uh, i i agree with you on the point that democratic party has areas where they differ with india despite sharing common values for instance the kashmir question the citizenship amendment act human rights concern even uh, for a while not recently i'm sure joe biden is not uh, for uh, nuclear non proliferation and uh, restricting india's interest in civil nuclear but conventionally there were uh, reasons for their differences so as a matter of fact uh, kashmir issue Uh, the citizenship amendment act and some of the human rights issues particularly affecting uh, the minorities etc uh, democratic party looks at india from a critical angle and uh, that exactly is probably one reason where uh, you you could see uh, jay shankar did not uh, uh, provide an audience with the democratic party this time uh, and also you have seen uh, when prime minister modi Uh, visited the united states last time and uh, appreciated the, uh, the republicans and particularly his uh, friendship with uh, trump is very very clear so on this issue article 370 kashmir issue citizenship amendment act uh, there are differences honestly there are differences but these differences can be debated discussed negotiated and uh, we can discuss further on that uh, whether this is going to affect indo us relations in the event of joe biden becoming a president uh, i don't think that it is going to be a serious bone of contention i don't think it is going to be a serious bone of contention for example when bill clinton was the president he also had the shared the same opinion on uh, jammu kashmir and uh, he even predicted that uh, there is a possibility of a nuclear flashpoint Uh, in south asia on kashmir issue so there were differences even during bill clinton's period so democratic party's uh, trust area and concerning their uh, opinion on uh, kashmir and the recent human rights issues and the citizenship amendment act i think uh, uh, may raise issues in our relationship with united states but they are not going to upset the whole about homey between the two countries i'm sure that uh, these things can be negotiated but you are very right in saying that there are areas where democratic party differ with uh, india particularly with the indian establishment and uh, those are areas where we can still negotiate and discuss further but uh, uh, that is not going to destroy the kind of engagement we have already set in uh, prior to clinton prior to trump and even after trump probably because uh, uh, the geopolitical strategies and also the issues concerning uh the the mighty chinese empire developing in uh, the so in east asia and south asia and southeast asia and further that the pakistan's concerns and their uh, promotion of terrorism i think there are areas where 
democratic party will appreciate the the kind of dilemmas that we are facing and would appreciate so i don't think that ultimately it is going to destroy the indo-american relations even in the case of uh, democratic party coming to the white house i don't think it will destroy indo-us relations uh, Mr. Rosso, uh, I think I should ask this question about H-1B visa. I think I'm sure most of the participants you know, in this program, they will be eagerly uh, looking forward to get this answer. Uh, how H-1B visa is going to tilt the balance, one, during the election and post-elections? Because, you know, I've seen uh, my, my understanding, my reading goes as, you know, like the last 15, 20 years, let's say since 2000. Indian diaspora is the second largest, you know, diaspora in the in the U.S. I mean, growing diaspora, and H-1B visa, L-1 visa. I mean, and from the from the point from the point of the United States, it it contribute quite a lot uh, to the uh, the people to people engagement, uh, building that soft uh, power engagement, uh, strengthening the relationship between the two countries, and Prime Minister Modi whenever he visited. You know, we also seen you know, uh, you know, large gatherings, uh, you know, where he addressed uh, Indian diaspora. So, how this H-1B visa is going to tilt the balance in the elections? Whether it is going to be a dominating issue uh, for the Indian diaspora voters, and how is it going to change uh, post elections? Well, uh, you know, I, I think that um, H-1Bs um, are, are very crucial for U.S.-India commercial relations. You know, as I mentioned, kind of in my opening. Um, we, we talk about make in India, we talk about make, Amer make in America, we talk about manufacturing and such, but cross-border digital services remains uh, really the most important element of U.S.-India commercial relations. And from all my engagements with India's technology powerhouses, you know, TCS, HCL, Wipro and others, um, the ability to move workers back and forth is crucial for securing, you know, these contracts to become partners to, uh, to America's largest and, and most powerful firms. And that, a lot of ways, you know, really is uh, the bedrock of the U.S.-India commercial relationship. So, um, I, you know, when you when you talk to to U.S. Uh, company executives, um, they need uh, to bring out high skilled workers for jobs that can't be filled by Americans. There, there certainly is a growing unemployment rate due to COVID, and there was still, you know, even though unemployment rates were relatively low, but there still is, un you know, unemployed uh, folks uh, even before COVID. But the kind of high-end jobs that uh, India was able to provide were ones that weren't easily filled. You've got U.S. executives that talk about this time and again. Um, you know, even though you know, it, it, it's very difficult to bring somebody from that far of a distance, so you know that the gaps must be uh, must be pretty severe. Um, but you know, you've got a, a, a sitting American president that you know right now. If you look at polling numbers across the United States, you know he's got a very small chance of winning this election. He did last time, and he did it so. Small chance still means that he does have a chance, but it's a, it's a relatively narrow chance. And so any place that he can shore up a few votes that he thinks is going to help him, he's got to push on that. And so you've seen him pushing, you know, additional visa restrictions. Uh, this includes, of course, the the blanket uh, ban on issuance of new visa, new H-1B visas, uh, revoking um, the uh, executive order that President Trump had passed, or sorry, that President Obama had passed, allowing spouses of H-1B workers. Um, you know, at least the, uh, the the ban on issuance uh, expires um, uh, early in 2021, um, and so you know, really, it's going to be up to the next president to decide if they're going to maintain that or if they're going to they're going to let it lapse and not, not choose to renew. Um, you know, I think uh, I think either irrespective of who wins, there's going to be a bit, little bit less pressure 
uh, post-election on, on keeping up you know, this blanket ban. So you may see President Trump look for small ways to maybe narrow the window a little bit on the other side because he wants to continue momentum with his political base. But I think the pressure uh, that you see President Trump responding to right now in, a, in an effort to try to win those last few votes that maybe were undecided and maybe an immigration ban, you know, would, would impact the communications workers' life in the United States. And this is something that make them gravitate towards the president uh, re-election campaign. So those pressures are certainly there. You're seeing the president respond to it. I think the pressures get taken off. And I think, um, you know, with, with not, not so much the Indian companies, but the U.S. companies who will begin lobbying and petitioning the United States government to reopen the visa window because they need those workers. Um, so I, I think post-election, post I think, you know, if, if President Trump is re-elected, re you may still see some, some pressure put on H-1Bs here and there. But the blanket ban and these over, overreach that you see right now, I think, are less likely to be continued. So, also, uh, can you also give some insights on um, issues like uh, generalized system of reference, uh, GSP? Because I, we, we know, you know, 2018 President Trump, you know, uh, withdrew from that uh, uh, agreement, understanding generalized system of reference. There are lots of number of issues related to intellectual property rights. Uh, it, you know, there are uh, so many disputes in WTO related to tariff escalation by the USA and then then counter uh, you know uh, escalation by indian side then farmers issues you know and uh, i remember there was a time a uh, couple of years back uh, uh, you know a lot of discussion about import of uh, fruits import of uh, farm import i mean import of farm producers to india you know fruits nuts uh, you know cotton uh, dairy products uh, so what do you think i mean what do you think how these uh, issues because these are not issues, uh, you know, just started with the Trump administration. I, I remember yeah. in, from 1989 onwards, we discussing a number of issues. I mean, including the 301 not uh, about, uh, you know, uh, the intellectual property rights. Uh, and it also has affected, uh, had an impact on you know, investments. And uh, I, I think, you know, like in India, we talk a lot about second generation reforms. This is a domestic issue I'm talking about. Uh, in the Indo-US relations also, I see we have to go to the next level. Uh, I believe, you know, with the onset of 2008 Indo-nuclear deal, we had the first reform package or the revisit to the all Indo-US relations. Now, after 20 years, I believe uh, whoever comes to the White House, you know, we are expecting uh, a new approach, a different approach, because we are getting into higher education, we are getting into pharmaceuticals, we get into health. Uh, a lot of other stuff, maybe it's not easy to quantify most of them. So how do you see, uh, you know, all these issues? How are we going to, how, how the leadership should approach these issues? Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of the issues you're talking about, um, U.S. commercial concerns that we've had on doing business with India that are longstanding, you know, that's one bucket, and you're right. Um, you know, we can look at a, an agenda for commercial discussions. 10 years ago, and we'll see one set of issues. 20 years ago, we'll see a little bit different set of issues. Most of that was focused on concerns about how fast India is liberalizing. It's different now. It is very, very different now. The concerns the United States mostly is raising are concerns about new restrictions India has imposed. So 91, you know, the beginning of the reform period, you saw uh, not necessarily steady, right? Some years you'd see a number of reforms, other years a little bit less. But generally, the process was heading you know, significantly in one direction, which is deregulating the economy, uh, reducing, uh, reducing customs duties, opening up foreign direct investment caps. I think with Prime Minister Modi, and again, this, this well predates uh, President Trump's election, 
Um, you know, the way that uh, I give kind of my elevator pitch on how Prime Minister Modi approaches the economy as it relates to American companies, um, he's very pro-investment and very anti-trade. Um, you've seen him open up foreign direct investment caps uh, more actively than, than any of his predecessors had done since reforms began. Uh, you see him personally courting investors. I mean, these, these uh, images of him up on stage engaging with groups of CEOs and trying to win their business. I mean, we, we forget, but six or seven years ago, that kind of vision was practically impossible to see. I know from my many years uh, as an executive with the U.S. India Business Council, we would host Indian leaders, prime ministers, finance ministers, and others. And they, for the most part, shied away from doing any kind of visible engagement with foreign, uh, foreign executives. They want to have private sessions where there wasn't press interaction, that kind of thing, because they wanted foreign investment, but they didn't want to be seen as courting foreign investment. Um, so I think on the investment side, you've seen a lot of really good things happening. But on the trade side, you know, this is very different. This is not simply resolving old disputes. This is trying to peel back some of the new trade barriers that India's imposed in recent years. Um, and, and there's a whole slew of them. I mean, again, you can go back through every budget since the Modi government came in. They're adding 20, 30, 40 sectors where they're oftentimes doubling or significantly increasing customs duties on toiletries, on cars, on, on a really wide range of things where they're hoping to stimulate domestic production. Um, and so I, I think, you know, when we talk about like restoration of GST benefits, there's a package the negotiators have pulled together, um, you know, which would, would India would offer some concessions, uh, including some of the longstanding areas, as well as some of the newer ones, in exchange for the restoration of this uh, benefits package. I do hope our negotiators can conclude that package and GSP can be restored. But, you know, I think the bigger question, which uh, unfortunately, I don't think we know the answer to is, you know, if a Biden administration were to win, how would they look at the trade deficit with India? Now, you know, we have a trade deficit. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's fairly significant. If you look at the, uh, the quantum of total trade in terms of the, uh, the size of our, of, our, of, our, of our trade deficit with India, but it pales in comparison when you think about our trade deficit with China. So, you know, there's two different ways you can look at it. You know, it simply as a bilateral, yeah. I mean, we, we import a lot more from India than we export, but overall that deficit is tiny compared to China. President Trump has chosen to challenge and, 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 and impose restrictions on any large country with which we have deficits. Um, a Biden administration you know, may relax that somewhat and realize that you know, while India, you know, by technical measures, has become a lower middle income country, you know, we know from, from travels across India that there's still wide swaths of the nation that you know, still uh, have not yet uh, entered uh, global levels of prosperity by any measure whatsoever. And so holding India up to you know, kind of a middle income status and, and expecting that we'd, we'd have some moderation of trade and fighting India for every new trade imposition that they put in place. Um, I think there's a, there's a decent chance that if uh, Vice President Biden wins, you may see a little bit less pressure. So I do hope they get the deal to restore GSP. Uh, I do hope that both countries decide that uh, this protectionism that we've seen, you know, is not worthwhile. And maybe it could be targeted a bit more instead of hitting each other and kind of glancing blows. Um, crucial to get this taken care of though, Dennis. So I'm glad you asked it. Thank you, Russell. Uh, I'm starting uh, uh, taking questions from the audience, uh, non-members. Uh, those uh, watching this uh, live stream, please type your questions in the chat box or in the Facebook uh, chat box. Um, so this question is from uh, Mr. K.V. Thomas, one of the senior fellows of uh, CPPR. Uh, this question is to Dr. Gobagumar. Uh, this question is about uh, the America's uh, you know, increasing economic compulsions. Is it because of economic compulsions that uh, now America is you know, softening their stand 
to China. It is a America is softening their stand to China. I mean, uh, that's one of the questions uh, that one of the participants asked. Uh, uh, to give a background, probably I'll add to that question. When uh, Trump uh, started uh, his innings, uh, there was around 700 billion US dollars. That was a trade deficit between China and US. By that time, now, even though he had put up uh, a lot of restrictions and there was a you know, global trade war, I mean, we all know that. I mean, now the deficit is around 800 billion US dollars. It decreased, it actually increased. Uh, so his question is about you know whether there's a compulsion now on uh, you know US or they're realizing since we talked about Saul of America to true liberal democracy that uh, US was always uh, there's a shift uh, with the President Trump's uh, you know uh, tenure. Uh, is there any any uh, there's a compulsion on China, US to soften the stand on China? That's first question. His second question is about is uh, uh, also asking about uh, you know. America was a very sleeping power, you know. Uh, earlier, you know, they didn't care much about Indian Ocean region. Now, with the you know uh, uprise of uh, you know uh, Chinese uh, he hegemony in this region, uh, uh, they are also you know very much active, getting active in uh, you know uh, the, the equations like cord and all. So these are there are two questions. One is about is there any compulsion on China in, in, on the U.S. Because of economic reasons, you know, they are softening the stand on China. Second, uh, the is it because of you know Chinese you know hegemony in this region? They are actively participating in 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 the framework court framework. I, I didn't. I didn't get the second part of the question. Second question. First question. The, I court, I mean, the U.S. is showing a lot of interest Can in I the court. 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 The Americans are showing a lot of interest in the court. So, is it? Uh, is there any reason? Is it because only because of China they are showing a lot more interest in India-Pacific region? Okay. Okay. Uh, the first question is uh, whether. Uh, America is going to be a little softer on China. Uh, yes. I would say that uh, in the event of uh, Joe Biden coming to power, uh, I think uh, uh, he will not be as aggressive as Trump, President Trump. Uh, so there could be a kind of a mutual understanding and coexistence at some level. Uh, so the kind of uh, uh, relationship with China may be a little better uh, with uh, Joe Biden coming to power because uh, his interest may not be to continue with the kind of trade war which also affect American economy and American interests. So that part also has to be taken into consideration. But if uh, Trump is voted back, I think he will not change much of his position uh, on China because uh, on China is very clear, although uh, Trump was mercurial and uh, unpredictable on many, many other things. But uh, on China, at least, uh, his position was uh, very clear. So in the event of Trump regaining his presidency, definitely uh, the competition, the kind of relationship with China is going to be uh, more adverse. And the kind of competition also is going to be very unhealthy. And uh, But it can happen the other way if Joe Biden is likely to uh, come back to, is likely to uh, vote to power. So I think uh, Joe Biden will not uh, be very soft. Uh, he has to realize a kind of uh, 
competition that exists between uh, United States and China as the two major powers of the 21st century, but uh, the kind of aggressiveness that Trump displayed may not be reoccurring again. So that is uh, one point, and uh, the the, the uh, can you repeat the second point of the, the, the again relating to China? Active participation of the United States in court, the court, Australia. In court, yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I think on this count, Democrats and Republicans may not differ much because they have commercial interests, they have geopolitical interests and strategic interests uh, in Indo-Pacific. So definitely, uh, they would be appreciating the acceptance of. Uh, Australia now to the Malabar, Malabar naval exercise and also further for strengthening the cord, which China has already criticized as the South Asian North Atlantic Treaty Organization. They have already said it is Indo-Pacific NATO. But the point is that uh, there are common interests affecting or connecting between India, Japan, Australia and the United States and the cord is going to be there. Cord is going to be strengthened further because this is one way through which uh, uh, China can be checkmated and uh, Chinese interests, as I have already hinted earlier, that it spread as long or as uh, uh, distant as South China Sea and to the Himalayas and towards the south uh, to the Indo-Pacific. So Australian concerns are also to be taken vitally into the Pacific region. So as a result of all these things, cord will be definitely strengthened and this is one area where this uh, election will not bring any change and court is going to be there irrespective whether it is Trump or Joe Biden. My feeling is that court is a necessity of the 21st century as far as these four nations, India, United States, um, Japan and Australia are concerned. So it is effectively connecting Indo-Pacific and Indo-Pacific has large potentiality uh, in terms of commercial, natural resources, strategic and many, many areas. So uh, that way I think uh, uh, the court has to be strengthened, and I am sure that uh, the uh, presidential candidates have caught the attention on this point, and it is likely to continue. And more strength has to come, and then all the four nations will be appreciating that. And one trend that we have seen is that America appreciated India's acceptance of Australia to the Malabar Naval Exercise reason. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Uh, uh, this question goes to uh, Mr. Rosso. Uh, do you visualize uh, a strained trade relationship between India, India, uh, the U.S. and China, India and China, uh, which is, is it going to influence U.S. interest in uh, Indian, uh, you know, interest in investing in India? I mean, including the transfer of technology, uh, support to boost Indian economy uh, post-COVID period. Uh, or uh, it also talks a lot about the protectionism. We already talked about it, but still there is a question about it. Uh, uh, do you yeah. anticipate a change after the assumption of a new incumbent in the White House uh, in the context of India, China, China, India, uh, the US, China, and then how is it going to influence uh, the US interest in India, especially in the bilateral trade investments? Well, I think one of the one of the crucial areas of this, maybe I'll sort of focus on, is um, I know India is definitely hoping that, you know, as the United States ratchets up our trade fight with China, and, uh, and especially uh, with, with COVID, where you see more U.S. companies actually interested in, 
in exploring markets beyond China to, to really kind of establish global manufacturing bases. I know there's a real hunger and desire in India to see if they can secure some of that investment that maybe, you know, typically had gravitated towards China for, for a couple of decades, but might be looking for other homes now. I think that's kind of like the real novel area right now that uh, tends to make up a lot of discussions. Um, it's interesting because I think, you know, at, at some point, you know, this is a decision that every company has to make individually. Is India the right place? Right now, you see a lot of U.S. companies that because of the trade war with China and other factors, they're looking for other markets. They went to Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Mexico, and some of them even uh, reshored back to the United States where they may have uh, pushed manufacturing out in recent years. India has picked up some incremental level of investment, but um, not really become, I, I think, that major hotbed that uh, the position that China had held for, uh, for a number of, uh, of decades now. Um, you know, beyond these couple of major investments you've seen recently in Reliance and Geo in particular, um, you know, India's foreign direct investment has remained pretty good by India's longtime standards, you know, 45 to $50 billion a year of foreign direct investment. Um, that's, that's better than India's recent historical standards, but well below what China was able to do during its peak when they were pulling in $100, $150 billion annually. And a lot of that was, was focused on manufacturing. So, you know, the question is, can India begin to take advantage of companies looking to relocate supply chains. That's an area where I think, frankly, Japan and Australia have actually done better work than the United States has from the government standpoint. You do see that under the US, uh, sorry, under the Australia, India, Japan trilateral, there's a new working group to look at the, uh, the, the changing supply chains and uh, Australia and Japan both are, are eager to help their companies that may be heavy in China to look at India as the next best destination. So it's great to see government work streams that are trying to create an easier landing pad for companies to, to move investments into India. I think for the United States right now, we're in a position where um, because of trade deficits, because of concerns about outbound investment, um, you know, we, we, there's, a, there's a certain amount of pressure not to promote U.S. companies uh, looking to, to invest overseas and a lot more focus on trying to get U.S. companies to reinvest in the United States rather than invest overseas. Um, that, that may change. Uh, I do think that, um, you know, that, that kind of initiative is, is a bit more biting with President Trump, um, who really is trying to stake his claim on helping restore, you know, this, this America that people kind of envision of, of decades past, where there was jobs falling out of trees for everybody, that everybody was working in an auto plant, things like that. That's not where we're going to get back to. You know, we're moving towards high-end services and other things right now. So, uh, you may start to see the United States government begin to uh, find some small ways to support U.S. companies that have been using China as a major manufacturing hub to look at places like India. Now, that's from the government's perspective. From a company's perspective, you know, there's a couple of things to keep in mind, some of which we've discussed already. I mean, there still are areas where India needs to improve. Um, state governments in particular need to get a lot of things right on delicensing, uh, cutting down on the difficulties on land acquisition. Uh, the Modi government made some slight amendments on labor reforms, but states can do a lot more if they really want to attract a lot of that investment. So I'd say keep an eye on what happens in places like Maharashtra, Gujarat, Kerala, Telangana, places like that, um, to see whether India can really send up a beacon that they want to attract a lot of that investment, because it's going to be up to the chief ministers as much as it's going to be up to, uh, to the prime minister. But the one thing that India certainly has in its pocket that Vietnam and Mexico and other places don't is 1.3 billion people with rising incomes. So, you know, whether India today is the logical place to set up a global investment uh, hub, maybe not. Some of your suppliers may not be there yet. 
the ports are relatively inefficient, you know, moving stuff in and out, it's not necessarily so easy. And that's where customs duties make a big impact. But if you're looking to invest in a place because you want to tap into one of the largest consumer bases that generally likes American products, uh, there's no better place than India. So they got a lot of good things going for it. I think a lot of individual companies will think that India is great for the domestic market, even if not for global production. But I would like to see that the United States government maybe uh, offer some incentives and boosts to try to get companies looking to leave China to consider India, because it is nice to uh, augment and support a country that shares so many principles with the United States. Uh, Rosso, uh, I think I should take a cue from the answer that you've given. I know uh, Amiri had withdrawn from TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, and uh, India also withdrew from RCEP, citing you know, India. I mean, our justification was that none of these uh, agreements are not helping us. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Mihisha in one of his uh, articles, you know, he said, uh, this could have been a great opportunity for America to push these ideas. Uh, probably this could have been a counter China led South, you know, projecting India and convincing Indian leadership. And also, you know, Americans joining uh, TPP, RCEP, uh, but they failed. I mean, the present leadership failed, it seems, you know. So, what do you see? What do you think about the future of these uh, partnerships, you know, trade partnerships, trade agreements in this region as a, as a counter to China dominance? Yeah. Um... Well, I think, uh, I think we've got to begin thinking about trade agreements a little bit more strategically. Um, you know, the United States, we keep thinking of trade agreements as this full-scale free trade agreement, like we've done with so many countries, um, you know, with our, our NAFTA agreement, which saw, you know, a subtle renegotiation with Korea, with Colombia, you know, all these free trade agreements that we've signed, we've got a template. Uh, we try to stick to it as closely as we can. Um, everybody's pretty familiar with it. There's pieces some people like, there's pieces others don't. But I think if we're, if we're talking about uh, lashing our economies together because of shared concerns about the rise of China, I think targeting them a little bit more is going to make sense. And frankly, it might make them more palatable. We've seen, like, for instance, as you mentioned before, Danu, um, signing uh, a logistics agreement for our militaries to cooperate and things like that. Um, we only began to get momentum when we showed flexibility. That's when India began to take a lot more interest in these, that we, we weren't going to hold India to the rigid standards and signing defense cooperation agreements the way that we've done with all of our other partners. It took the United States a while to get there. Um, you know, for the most part, these agreements are signed by relatively low-level military officials with most of our partners. Um, but once we got there, um, we actually, you know, we've been signing these agreements at a pretty regular clip now, which is great. Uh, and I hope that our trade policy folks can, can take a cue from that and think more strategically is there a way we should shape agreements that would include both the United States and India in a way that meets multiple objectives and maybe doesn't provide the lashback that um, you know, these broad free trade agreements have done for both of our countries? And I'll give you a couple of examples. One that personally I'm extremely supportive of, you know, when you think about um, the, the threat that China manufacturing poses in the future, you might know that there's this uh, program that China announced a few years ago called Made in China 2025, where China wants to dominate global trade flows and manufacturing for critical industries, battery storage, autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, medical devices, a whole range of technologies where China wants to leverage and marshal all of its immense resources. And, you know, they can pull more stops out than either the United States or India can. Choosing national champions that are supported by the government, forcing other government companies to buy from them to build up economies of scale. There's tools that China can break out that neither of our two, two countries can. So we're thinking about a trade architecture that makes sense, both in terms of our, our, our business sectors, but also our, our strategic interests. 
I think we've got to be a little bit more thoughtful. If we, if we were to craft something around made in China, help our, our two countries become more competitive in the sectors that China has circled and said, this is where we're going to dominate. The target is obvious. The, the challenge that we've got is immense. So I think if we were to talk about trade relationships in, the, in terms of the, the real threats that are out there and begin focused cooperation on that, it's a lot easier for our senior leaders to grab onto that than simply saying one more FTA. Well, a lot of people don't like those and that kind of thing. So I think we got to get smarter. We got to figure out trade policy that is more accommodating of the direct security risks rather than simply saying an FTA is our, is our way to, to bring us together. I, I think we got to be a lot more detailed. And I think there's scope to do that. Good. Uh, Dr. Gopagumba, there's a question from Monica Kishin. Uh, this is about uh, Dr. Gopaguma, the question uh, is asked by Monica Kishin. Uh, she's asking uh, about in, in, the, in the event of a democratic win, um, whether there will be a change in their approach towards China and how is it going to have an impact on the present crisis, I'm sure all of us know, uh, the border uh, crisis that we are facing. And uh, will, if, in the event of a democratic win, uh, Biden, Biden comes uh, to the Sorry, White House, will it change? I'm not getting it. Hello. 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 Huh. So this question is about uh, in uh, in the case of in the ca yeah in the case of Biden's victory Biden's victory uh, how is it going to change huh. uh, the U.S. China relations and in effect how is it going to change and it is going to impact on you know China's approach towards India. Hello. Hello. Could you hear me? Yes. Yes. China relation and second, second is how this is going to yeah, how, second, how is this part. is going to have an impact on Chinese approach to Indian uh, India. I mean the border issues. I think she's referring to the present yeah. crisis, border crisis. Yeah. Will they be become very aggressive? Because you know now China thinks uh, I, I think they believe yeah. that uh, uh, U.S. I mean at least on paper, you know they will support India in the cases of an, uh, an eventuality. Uh, so if in case if Biden comes to a White House, how is it going to change? Yeah, uh, in no way I presume that uh, uh, Biden is going to be soft on China. He cannot be soft on China. So uh, he may not be as aggressive as Trump, but definitely China is a major rival to the United States, probably the only rival as of now for many decades to come. So I think uh, uh, Biden will be definitely having a uh, support to India on this count and uh, particularly the kind of uh, imperialist interest that Chinese are showing across uh, Indo-Pacific and also in South Asia. So they are close rapport with Pakistan. When you take all these factors into consideration, American interests would bind uh, uh, the leadership to see that China has to be taken very, very seriously. And that is for that matter, I think, irrespective of whether Republicans or Democrats, I think uh, India can be the best bet for United States. So it is the Chinese uh, rivalry and the kind of competition, uh, not just uh, uh, military competition, but also economic competition, strategic competition. When you take all these factors, I think America can definitely look upon India 
and India support will be there. So I think Biden will not be that different as far as uh, uh, President Trump is concerned, but uh, definitely he'll be having uh, a priority towards India on this count. Uh, of course, we know Democratic Party's uh, problem with India, we have already discussed, but uh, that doesn't come with China. But uh, once Chinese assertion comes, I think uh, definitely uh, Biden will be supporting India. And Democratic administration will be supporting India on that count because uh, there are many areas, unlike in the past, where Chinese incursion can create problems for the American economy and American interests, including strategic interests. So it will not make much difference whether it is Trump or Biden. Uh, China card, I think uh, they will have to play the Indian uh, India card on the other side. And that is probably one reason why, uh, irrespective of Democrats or Republicans, there is so much of commonality as far as India is concerned in South Asian region and in Southeast Asian region. So I, I think it will be may it not be making a big difference. The differences may be there between Trump and Biden, but it is more of a degree rather than in kind. So there is one more question to you. Uh, this is from Harman Arora, one of the interns of uh, CPPR. This question is about uh, yeah. you know Kamala Harris becoming VP. Uh, Kamala Harris becoming VP, and how is it because she already raised the issue of Kashmir, Article Three Seventy. Yeah. And how is it going to change U.S.-Pakistan relationship? On Kashmir issue. How, 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 how is it going Hello? to change? The, the Hello? question how is related is to Kashmir. To Kashmir and also how is it going to change the U.S.-Pakistan relationship? The U.S.-Pakistan relationship. The U.S.-Pakistan relationship. I'm not getting. I'm not getting the last part. The, uh, I got that Kamala Harris opinion on Kashmir. I heard. Uh, and how that is going to. Uh, the second part. How that is going to influence the U.S.-Pakistan Pakistan relationship, the Pakistan relationship, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I, yeah. A very, very significant question. I think uh, Indian diaspora has a major role to play on this count because, you know, uh, I have personally seen this long, long back when the American caucus and the American lobby, irrespective of the Democrats or Republicans, Pakistan lobby has become extremely powerful during the Cold War period. We can understand that. But now it is no more a Cold War situation. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the position of the Democratic Party has not changed much. So I think the diaspora has a major role to convince the American administration, if it is Biden, definitely, they have to lobby hard further to see that there is a genuine case as far as India is concerned, India's strategic interests are concerned, why and how Kashmir is becoming, uh, has become historical part of India, cultural part of India, and definitely we want to have democratic rights upheld in Kashmir along with the other states of India, uh, and therefore, uh, I think we need to win over the Democratic Party. But uh, on that count, I think uh, the, the Indian diaspora has a major role to play. Unfortunately, that role has not come so far as far as Kashmir issue is concerned. That is why uh, whenever these uh, uh, issues of human rights and Kashmir issues are concerned, uh, Democratic Party has become a strong critic of India. I admit that. But along with that, I think uh, 
we need to lobby hard uh, about the significance of Kashmir's strategic priority in Southeast South Asian map and also the vulnerability as far as uh, Pakistan is concerned and the kinds of interest that Pakistan creating uh, in the Kashmir border. So I think uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, I think, is critical on Pakistan. But when it comes to Kashmir, I think the Democratic Party has a different uh, cup of tea on that. So I think uh, so on that count, I think uh, the Indian diaspora will have to play a meaningful role uh, in convincing the American audience and the American society about the kind of issues that we are facing for the last seven decades the kind of uh, Talibanic forces, the kind of Islamophobia, the kind of terrorist forces that has come through Kashmir borders to India and how it has affected regional stability. So these are matters of interest to any country in the world. And therefore, the real problem of uh, Pakistan's concern over issue, uh, interest over Kashmir has to be much more uh, publicized by the Indian diaspora. So that what we are doing, India is doing in Kashmir is not to violate human rights, but rather we need to uphold democracy in Kashmir, including our values about decentralization and uh, extending the Panjaitarai system at the third tier level. Now it has become a part of the union territory. So far, we didn't have a third tier system. Now it is possible to have. So with more democracy coming to the grassroots in Kashmir, things can change. And India as a strong committed nation for democracy, democratic rights will be upheld in Kashmir also. And this kind of arguments, I think we need to take it over to Democratic Party. And that is exactly where the diaspora has to play a meaningful role. In the Cold War period, we suffered a lot. At least in post-Cold War period, I think we have to convince the American lobbies as well as the American public opinion about the strategic issues and concerns and also the relevance of Kashmir as far as India's cultural and political history are concerned. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Uh, Rosso, uh, there's one question on strategic convergence. The strategic convergences for India and US in the Indo-Pacific, Afghanistan, and Iran. Uh, how do you look at uh, you know, the scenarios emerging? Well, uh, you know, I think there's, um, there's convergence on Afghanistan uh, to some extent. We both certainly hope that there's going to be a stable regime in Afghanistan uh, I presume India would prefer if the United States were to play a more active uh, security role in Afghanistan to support that kind of stability, rather than uh, potentially handing the keys over um, to the Taliban as a partner, uh, knowing that um, long term, nobody sort of expects that they're going to support the kind of stability in Afghanistan we'd all like to see. Um, but I think with Afghanistan, you know, I think India's strong desire, which I echo is, you know, it would be nice uh, since uh, India actually has a lot of direct interest if there was more negotiation uh, and, and consultation with India before the United States were to take steps. Uh, I do hope that improves somewhat if, uh, if Vice President Biden wins. I know it hasn't been uh, terrific in recent years, and it wasn't always so great, I think, during the Obama administration either. The United States tends to take these kind of decisions internally, communicate them, uh, but sometimes uh, uh, during, simultaneously, or even after the fact, as we communicate them to our friends in Afghanistan. So I think Broadly, you know, um, there's convergence on what we would like to see in Afghanistan long term, but uh, the, the policies on how to get there, um, we haven't always been working quite as closely in consultation as I'd like to see. Um, with Iran, you see a major divergence. Um, you know, the, the, the Obama administration uh, negotiating uh, an agreement with Iran on, on nuclear, uh, ultimately the Trump administration backing out of that, 
um, you know, despite the concerns of a lot of our European allies and others, um, still giving India some space for the work that they're doing on developing uh, Chabahar port. Um, and we'd like to certainly see that continue, if only for its uh, connectivity with Afghanistan. Um, you know, if, if Vice President Biden wins, um, I know that, uh, you know, most people in the U.S. strategic community that focus in Iran believe that, you know, JCPOA was about as good of an agreement as we were likely to get. Um, and so maybe you'll see the United States come back to that, which should ease up some of the pressures on India for, uh, for the import of hydrocarbons, for the development of Chabahar port. So uh, maybe there's a bit more space because I know for India, it's kind of been just dodging from uh, pressure point to pressure point in terms of the relationship with Iran. If President Trump wins re-election, I suspect that'll, that'll continue. So, you know, Afghanistan, I see a lot of convergence um, with Iran divergence, but maybe there's an opportunity uh, to come back together on that. Uh, the one country you didn't ask about, though, that I think uh, is going to be uh, probably the most crucial relationship, you know, when you think of third parties that are impacting U.S.-India relations uh, for the next U.S. president, whether it's uh, a second term for President Trump or, or Vice President Biden, is Russia. Um, you know, not only because of the kind of uh, direct attacks that we see in the United States on our elections and, 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 and you know, social media hits and that kind of stuff, um, but more directly, you know, India during the next couple of years is going to begin taking possession of this S-400 uh, missile defense system uh, that Russia produces. And as you, as you know, um, the United States has a sanctions program in place um, that would target any country that has a sizable military relationship and, and major military purchases from Russia. And there's, there's, a, there's a narrow space to allow a carve out on applying those sanctions. Um, there's some debate in Washington on whether that, that carve out is wide enough to accommodate India today. And even if it is, is there enough political momentum to do that? Um, that's one of the biggest questions that I think kind of sits there on the table for the, for, the, for the next U.S. administration is when India begins taking possession of these systems, do we sanction India and thereby set back U.S.-India defense relations and to some extent commercial relations, probably by a couple of decades? Um, or do we choose to use that waiver authority, maybe even having to expand the waiver authority a little bit to make it very clear? Um, so, so the one you didn't ask about, but the one that I'm keeping my eye on probably uh, most you, closely. So, but Rizzo, uh, would you like to uh, mention France also in this case? Uh, because we bought uh, Rafales from France and uh, France is becoming another security partner to India now. And I know that yeah. I know India is purchasing a lot of equipment from the US also. Um, yeah. So will that, that equation change? Uh, I don't know that that would necessarily change. I mean, I, I certainly know that the United States... Um, you know, had, had put a lot of uh, a lot of hopes behind winning the original MMRCA bid, uh, putting the F-16 and the F-18 both forward. But, you know, I understand the reasons why neither of those platforms were chosen. Now, the Raphael deal is only a partial fulfillment of the original MMRCA requirement. And, you know, the, the Ministry of Defense is, has uh, already uh, requested information on other platforms they would consider for a, a second piece of that. There's also a major uh, Indian Navy uh, carrier launch fighter deal that's pending right now. And the United States has a platform, the F-18, that's in the mix for that as well. Um, so there's a lot of U.S. Uh, sales that are on the table right now. Uh, maritime drones, an expansion of the P-8 uh, Navy patrol aircraft that uh, India already, already holds. So um, there's a lot of uh, sizable deals. So I think, you know, France winning some commercial deals for a million reasons. It doesn't evoke the same kind of concerns that Russia does. But I think on the flip side of that, you know, with, with France now showing increased interest, in Indian Ocean security as well. And again, the United States is finally kind of waking up to that fact. You know, that's an area where you see increased convergence. And, 
you know, certainly the United States would hope that every partner buys primarily from the United States when they need defense equipment. But, you know, losing that, we certainly hope that they're buying from partners that have a shared uh, security outlook. And uh, France, even though the United States and France have, haven't always seen eye to eye on security matters, you know, I think with uh, Indian Ocean stability, there's a lot of overlap there. So, um, so uh, certainly there's, there's a lot more, uh, uh, there's a lot of partners India could choose that would be more troubling than France. And frankly, there's, uh, there's some potential real upside yet that I don't think we've explored uh, as well as we could have. Thank you, Rosso. So we're coming to the end of this uh, conversation uh, before we, uh, I think there are two questions, two questions or two comments uh, I get from most of the participants. One, everyone would like to hear from you who's going to win the elections, <laughs> because I think the eve of election time when we have a conversation like this, I'm sure everybody is keen to know who is going to be the next president and, uh, you know, from your assessment, uh, who's going to win this election. And second, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is especially from one participant. Uh, this question comes from Kailas K. Kailas is asking two great democracies, you know, now potentially led by two strong men. What possible gains and losers do you see uh, in the, the post-American elections? So this, is, this could be your summary. You, know, you can summarize the discussion, both of you. One, who is going to win the elections? Second, you know, the, 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 convention, the global politics is revolving around strong men. And as far as Biden is concerned, I don't think people are counting him. I know we are not counting him as a strong man as a way we you know, think about Trump. Uh, so is global politics on the verge of a change, a transition? Well, let me ask Dr. Gopakumar to start because he, he follows U.S. elections more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Gopakumar. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's been nice meeting you, Dr. Kapukumar. Uh, you want to comment on this? Who is going to who is going to win the elections? And second, uh, you know whether we are on the verge of a another change, you know, another change, global political change, if Biden wins this time. I'm sorry for the interruption that has come. I think, uh, can you, can you, do you mind repeating it? Uh, so, so who, who is going to win the elections? That's the first question. Who is going to win the, <laughs> what is your assessment? Who is going to win the elections this time? Who is going to win the elections for this time? Okay. Okay. And second, there is one more question. Yeah. If, if Biden yeah. wins. Yeah. If Biden, if Biden I, I wins. I this question I would post also, but uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he will also come. Uh, he will also my, come. Yeah. My, yeah. Yeah, my yeah. No, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. My gut feeling is that Biden is going to win. Okay. If no, Biden, Biden is going to win this election. Uh, so the next question uh, because, is because uh, uh, two because two reasons are only against the Trump. Uh, number one. The mismanagement of the pandemic, which uh, affected the economy grossly, uh, intensified unemployment, and also affected uh, the health issues of the people in general. That is fundamentally number one. The second is uh, the kind of public opinion that changed up uh, George Floyd issue, uh, the black, uh, that I think. Uh, is also another aspect. 
but but not as forceful as the first one. So these two, I think, uh, uh, has uh, has a have a strong bearing upon the electoral pros and the minds of the people, and therefore uh, Biden on the other side has a credit of uh, uh, becoming the vice president for a reasonable period, and with a uh, the first lady candidate likely to become the vice president, attracting the votes from the uh, ethnic minorities across the country. I think uh, uh, Democratic Party is. Uh, Somewhat better placed compared to the uh, anti-government element that uh, Republicans are facing now. And uh, what was your second question? Second part. If 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 if, if, as per, if your prediction, if your forecast is true, Biden is going to win the elections. In that case, in that case, is it going to you know make a shift? You know, this is going to be a shift in global politics because I think the last few years, especially in the last decade. You seen the global politics is revolving around, you know, uh, alpha men. I would say <laughs> the alpha leadership or the strong leadership. So, is it going to change uh, with the Biden's view? Uh, yes, uh, there are, there will be a lot of changes. Uh, for example, you know, Biden is committed to the promotion of climate change uh, and addressing the concerns of climate change in the real interest of environmental protection. So he may be promoting the idea of joining, rejoining America, rejoining the Paris uh, uh, Climate Accord. That is one probability. And also uh, his concerns uh, about the uh, issues affecting the people across the world those marginalized people, some of the problems across, uh, other than the climate change is uh, the rise of international terrorism, then the problem of drug abuse, uh, then the issues concerning the marginalized sections, their human rights issues. So these are going to be of much interest to democratic parties uh, because it goes along with their core interests and core ideology. Uh, but uh, of all these things, I think, the most important thing is that Biden is going to take environmental issues much more seriously uh, than President Trump. And that is where climate change will become a major issue and uh, America may rejoin the Paris Peace Accord. Thank you. From ground zero, Rosso, what do you think about the elections? Well, I, you know, I, I make predictions. I, I, you know, I follow Indian politics much closer than my own, so I'd, I'd be more comfortable talking about the uh, Bihar state elections that are happening rather than our own. But yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with Professor Gopakumar. You've got a poll after poll that's showing that uh, that Vice President Biden has a pretty significant lead, including in crucial battleground states. Um, and even though you know it is true that uh, Hillary Clinton also had similar leads uh, four years ago. Um, at the tail end, you did see uh, uh, Trump, uh, you know, uh, gaining some momentum, whereas Hillary Clinton dogged by these emails and some other things that were happening. Um, you saw a decline of interest, you know, in the, in the last weeks, um, whereas you see kind of the, the opposite happening right now. But uh, Trump supporters, um, they're, they're very strong. You know, they, they really believe that there's never been a candidate that speaks to them as strongly as he does. And when you got half, less than or only around half of the United States voting population that comes out to vote for elections, um, it doesn't take much, you know, to, to suddenly change the narrative and flip an election here. So, you know, the polls show one thing. Uh, we've seen the opposite happen there. Um, but beyond that, I don't think I'm nearly smart enough to try to make an independent prediction on what's going to happen there. 
But, you know, I think uh, Professor Gopal Kumar touched on something very significant when you think about what would happen, you know, if Vice President Biden wins, uh, that we hadn't really talked about during the conversation uh, on climate change. That's going to be an enormous thing that I think is going to bring the two leaders together, something that's been largely absent from the dialogue in recent years. Um, but uh, that really was the glue uh, between that great relationship that President Obama had struck with Prime Minister Modi was on climate change. Security and other things were very important as well. But climate change was President Obama's number, number one overriding international imperative. And seeing a like-minded leader in Prime Minister Modi, you know, with India announcing major targets like this renewable energy target and things like that, um, and I think that's going to rebound and prove to be, you know, an important uh, glue that sticks the two countries together. But overall, this idea about strongmen and bringing the two countries together, you know, I think there's another element, too, in the United States, which we haven't discussed yet, which uh, is going to be important for everybody to keep an eye on. If Vice President Biden wins or even if Trump wins reelection, who gets appointed to top positions and what's their position and feeling and sentiments towards India? You don't become secretary of state or secretary of defense because you have a good track record on India. India is still not at that level. You know, a lot of times you've got great experience on China, on Russia, Europe, things like that. So the question is, when you see people that get appointed to these key roles, do they care to spend some extra time in growing the partnership with India, which still today, you know, it's not as tangible as our defense relationships with Japan and Korea and Australia and others, uh, many, of our, many of our European co counterparts. So, uh, you know, it's always a bit of a roll of the dice. Uh, if you get good folks at the cabinet and sub-cabinet level that decide when they got that extra 10 minutes a week to work on the future, India is the place they decide to put those bets. You've seen that with some great folks in previous administrations. I think uh, Dr. Ash Carter, our former defense secretary, um, you saw that with, uh, with Nick Burns and also Bill Burns when they were, you know, both serving as undersecretary of state. Um, so, you know, those are really, at the end of the day, kind of the heroes that at senior levels um, really do nudge the relationship forward in substantive levels. So keep an eye on that after the election. It's great to see who the leaders are. It's going to be crucial to see who the senior folks are that fill out the administration in the United States. And do they choose to spend a little bit of extra time building this relationship? Those are the ones that are going to make or break the deal. With that positive note, we are coming to the uh, conclusion of this uh, conversation. Very, very, uh, I mean, very insightful conversation. Many points. I think both the panelists agree on the point that, uh, you know, India-US relationship is on a positive trajectory. And whoever wins, it doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's going to be on a positive trajectory. We are going to improve our diplomatic, political uh, relationship. We are also going to improve our trade relationship. And uh, I think uh, both New Delhi and Washington have to do a lot. Uh, and uh, the final point that uh, Mr. Rosso made about, you know, it's also not about White House, it's also about Capitol Hills, <laughs> what is going to happen with the South Asia desk there. Uh, uh, so thank you so much uh, for both the panel, uh, to both the panelists uh, for your uh, very insightful, thought-provoking discussion. And I'm sure all the participants enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much on behalf of Center for Public Policy Research and all the organizers behind this, you know, wonderful effort to con connect, uh, you know, uh, India and US. Uh, thank uh, you. I thank all of you and uh, uh, keep, uh, you know, watching our program, keep tuned to our uh, CPPR uh, web page and social media pages. Uh, and uh, uh, I once again thank uh, Rick uh, for, you know, sparing your uh, time. I, I know, uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll catch up with you with the Bihar elections. <laughs> I, I, uh, and both of us, actually, you know, I think uh, Dr. Gopagubar is also a cephologist, non-cephologist in India. And uh, after, uh, you know, uh, I think uh, 
uh, one thing that is often reminded, you know, during last uh, U.S. presidential election was, you know, demonetization, <laughs> the announcement of demonetization by Prime Minister Modi when the the election results were about to come out. So hope, uh, you know, uh, something like that dramatic would not happen this time. Uh, but we will be, you know, focusing more on what is, you know, what is emerging from this election. Uh, so thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Kumar, uh, uh, joining us after, uh, I think it is after, after a few years you are joining because you are, you know, you are on an official capacity. Uh, thank you so much. We'll continue this conversation. And thank you all. Thank you, media. Thank you to all the participants. Thank you.